Well, what a glorious thought. We'll join the everlasting song. Can't wait for that. The song that truly never ends, that goes on for all eternity in praise of our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and around His throne. Looking forward to that, and we come to assemblies like this so we can prepare, our, prepare ourselves for that glorious eternal day. Thank you for being with us tonight. We have visitors again with us. We're so glad that you can be a part of this assembly. The title of the lesson, as you see on the screen, denominations you can read about in the Bible. Uh, this is a lesson I've preached before, but it's one that needs to be preached probably every decade or so, so I'm preaching it. And uh, something that we need to think about as members of the Lord's body, something that will help us in dealing with our friends and neighbors in the religious world, something also that will help us not slip away into denominationalism ourselves. And uh, there's probably more, and there is more, that can be said about some of the things we'll talk about tonight, but hopefully the things that we'll talk about will help us. For years, I preached that you cannot read anything about modern man-made denominations in the Bible. When I first started preaching for probably 10 or 20 years, uh, I remember saying that many times. You cannot read about denominations in the Bible. And in fact, of course, the Bible does talk about Jesus building a church, but only one church in Matthew 16 and verse 18. On this rock, he says to Peter, I will build my church, the rock of his identity, his identity as Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, not churches, not bunches of uh, denominations, but my church. In the New Testament, as Local churches were established, the one church of Jesus Christ, and then people becoming members of that in different localities. So you had churches in those localities, and you find that as the Apostle Paul went around, for instance, preaching to those churches, that he taught the same thing in every place. It wasn't like there was one denomination here and something that, some group that believed a different thing over here or was practicing another thing over there. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, he tells the Corinthians, I sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, I just want to tell you that if the Apostle Paul were today, he could not get away with that. If he went from place to place to place that called itself, themselves church, a church, many of those places he would not be welcome, not be allowed to teach the same thing he taught at the last place. But because there was one church, the church that Jesus built, and each one of these churches had members in it that were members of that church, he taught the same thing everywhere he went. Everywhere he went. And that's the way Christ designed it to be. And when you talk to people today about their Christian faith, you might ask someone, what faith are you? And normally they, well, I don't know about normally. Sometimes they might say, well, I'm a Christian. But more than likely around here, you ask somebody, well, what faith are you? And they'll say, well, I'm a, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a uh, Pentecostal or something like that. That's how they identify their faith. And all of those are different faiths. You recognize that. But in the New Testament, there was only one faith. Plainly said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
And in Jude, verse 3, Jude tells us that we're to continue, con, con, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith. One faith. And it was once for all delivered, so it's not going to change later. There's not going to be more of it, more different kinds of it. The one faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is what Jude tells people to contend for. So these facts certainly preclude the approving of even one denomination in the New Testament, let alone the hundreds and hundreds of denominations that we have in the religious world today. So I'm saying all of that to say, that's how I preached it when I first started preaching, and all of that that I just said is right, except when I said that the New Testament never says anything about denominations. It does. It just doesn't authorize them. It doesn't approve of them. It doesn't allow for them. And it strictly warns against them and exhorts New Testament Christians not to be a part of them. That's what the New Testament will say about denominations. So I want to talk to you tonight about denominations you can read about in the Bible. They're not approved, but they're in there. They're in there. So let's think about what a denomination is and some denominations that we see in the New Testament. First of all, the Jewish religion, based upon the law of Moses in the Old Testament, had denominations in it by the time you come to the first century. Uh, there were sects or denominations within Judaism. We're going to talk about the word sect equaling denomination here in a minute, but just accept that for the time being, and I'll explain that more in just a minute. But when you get to, for instance, Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, uh, the high court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, has the apostles before it. The high priest stood up with all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation. So here you have the high priest of the Jews, who was in Jesus' day, by the way, always a Sadducee. The Sadducee was the political religious party that had gained control of the priesthood because they had the approval of the Romans. And so the high priest would always be a Sadducee in the time of Christ. And here that's identified, Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. You have this sect. What does that mean? A division of the Jewish religion. The sect of the Sadducees. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 5, there were people of another sect of the Jewish religion, another denomination of the Jewish religion, known as Pharisees. Paul himself, when he was Saul of Tarsus, was a Pharisee. And in Acts chapter 5, 15 and verse 5, uh, there was a problem that arose in the church because it says that there were some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed and they rose up and they said it's necessary to circumcise uh, them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Of course Acts 15 is this gathering where Christians came together in Jerusalem to uh, discuss this problem of do you have to circumcise people who are Gentiles before they can become Christians and you have people who used to be Pharisees and apparently were still part of that Jewish sect, that Jewish denomination who are also supposed to be Christians standing up and saying yes we have to circumcise we have to circumcise Gentiles. The Apostle Paul, as he stood in Agrippa, talks about his previous life as a Jew. And he's saying that the Jews who knew him, he says, if they were willing to te testify, 
that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So definitely, as I said, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. So you had, in the Jewish religion, you had Sadducees. They were identified as a sect. You had Pharisees. They're another sect, another denomination of the Jewish religion. And interestingly, in the early years of Christianity, Christianity was not viewed as something separate from Judaism, but as a denomination within Judaism. Now, that's not necessarily, that's not what it was, but that's how a lot of Jews and a lot of people in uh, the religious world, perhaps even Romans, saw Christianity. They didn't really distinguish between Judaism and Christianity and just thought Christianity was a sect of a denomination of the Jewish religion. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 24 and verse 5, when Jews are accusing the Apostle Paul before uh, the Roman governor Felix, they said, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all of the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The sect of the Nazarenes. So here's a break-off, if you will, Jewish denomination. They're calling it the sect of the Nazarenes, of course, after Jesus of Nazareth. Later on in this uh, same context, the Apostle Paul himself, as he defends himself, says to Felix in Acts 24 and verse 14, I confess this to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so he's acknowledging that his detractors, his accusers, call this way that he's following a sect. It's not a sect of Judaism, but that's what they call it. This way that they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all the things that were written in the law and the prophets. So there you see some ways that this word sect or the concept of denominationalism was used even concerning the Jewish religion. There were divisions in Judaism, separate groups, and these groups were called, are called in the Bible, sects or denominations. What do we mean when we use this word sect then? Let me, I've been talking about for several minutes, but what's the, what's the definition of it? Where does the word come from? So the term sect in Scripture has a very negative connotation. Uh, we get our English word heresy from uh, the word that's translated sect. It's also sometimes translated heresy in the New Testament. And sects or heresies are works of the flesh. Um, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, the works of the flesh, the last one that's named in that verse, is heresies or sects. The Greek word, uh, as I said, we get our word heresy from that. It's in Greek, it would be probably pronounced heresy, but it's spelled almost the same. So that's the word in Greek that we get our word heresy. It's translated sect. How does that track as far as its definition goes? Well, Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words defines the Greek word this way. An opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of truth and leads to division or the formation of sects. Okay, so it's created around human opinion, human ideas, and then you divide, based on those ideas, the religious group. Webster's defines the word sect as a body or number of persons united in tenets chiefly philosophy or religion, but constituting a distinct party, 
by holding sentiments different from others. So you have this one party that believes this over here, that's a sect. Somebody else believes something different that they came up with over here, that's another sect. So these splinter groups out of a main group that are divided among themselves in two parties. So in politics in America, we have, we have multiple sects, if you will, in politics. We have not only uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans, you might be Libertarian or Green Party or whatever. There's plenty of other parties, I suppose. And, and also political ideals, conservatism, liberalism, uh, whatever, you know, different things are thrown out like that that describe different divisions within our nation, political divisions within our nation. And those could be called sects or denominations, politically speaking. Well, Random House Dictionary says of the word sect, it's a body of persons adhering to a particular religious faith or a denomination. That's how it defines the word. Maybe the clearest thing, way I could describe what a sect is or a denomination is, is uh, think about cutting up a pie. If that pie is represented God wants his people to be, and you're saying, uh, yeah, just give me a piece of that. Just cut me a, what do we say, a section, right? Just cut me a sect of that pie, and this is the piece I'm taking. This is going to be mine. Y'all can have the rest of that. You can have all the other parts of that. I'm taking this piece, and this will be my section. So we separate out a piece of the pie, and that's a section or a sect of the pie. When you learn division in school, you divide by something. What do you call that that you divide by? A denominator. That's where the word denomination comes from. It's a division, something you divide by. So when we talk about sex or denominations, we're talking about cutting up biblical Christianity into parties, into different groups. And as if that's okay by God. That's the mindset of most religious people today. It is certainly not biblical, as we've already established in the first few minutes of our lesson tonight. So the inspired writers use the word sect, or sometimes translated heresy, to represent a part cut off or separated from the true church of our Lord. Sectarianism, or denominationalism, uh, are equivalents, and they address this problem uh, in the church and in other areas of life as well. So, just thinking about what we've talked about, here's a, a pie chart, uh, appropriate enough, I suppose. <laughs> here's a pie chart that's uh, cut up into sections that demonstrates uh, what the Jews had done to the religion that Jesus, had, had, rather God, had given them through Moses. Uh, and this is just four sects of Judaism. There were more in Jesus' day. These are uh, some that we know about. You have Herodians that are mentioned in the Bible, Pharisees that are mentioned in the Bible. Essenes are not, but they were a sect of that time. Zealots were another sect of that time. Sadducees we read about. So you had the, the Jewish religion divided up into these various sections. And so you look at so-called Christian denominations today, and this is just a, an example of about seven different names, and I could have put uh, probably 700 different names here, but the pie slices would have been too small. So these are just representative. I'm not trying to pick 
pick on anybody. I'm just showing this is what we've got, okay? You have, you know, Pentecostal, there's one group. Lutheran, that's another group. Baptist, there's another group. Mormon, Methodist, Episcopalian, Catholic. All of these different sections, all of which claim to be uh, the Lord's people, while also claiming to be divided from other groups, some of whom they would admit or say are also the Lord's people. But we're divided. Supposedly God's okay with all of that. And we're all going to the same place. And you just choose, as Billy Graham would say, the church, or he really meant, the denomination of your choice. Right? That's how humans look at this. It's as unbiblical as anything could ever be. It's nothing like what the Bible describes. This is denominationalism. This is what you don't see in Scripture. What you do see today. But what I want you to know is that the Scriptures do prophesy and describe what we see today. They don't approve it. But they do prophesy of it. And they do describe it. And actually quite a bit of amazing detail when you start to look at it. So let's think about that for a few minutes. Denominational doctrines and practices that are mentioned and condemned in Scripture. The Holy Spirit saw this all coming and told us about it and warned us about it in the New Testament. For instance, there are denominations who are what they are, and as one of their main tenets, they teach that marriage is forbidden for certain of their members. Certain cults, notably the Catholic Church, uh, forbid their clergy to marry. Now, I had a discussion with a, a Catholic about this uh, just a few years ago, and he said, oh, we don't, we don't forbid it. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> he was just denying that they, do, that, that, you know, they do, don't do what they plainly do, actually do. Uh, he, you know, some, some quibble from their ancient writings or something like that that he had, but this is plainly what the Catholics do. You can read about that being warned about by the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, or verse, verse 1, rather, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit says expressly, Paul writes, the Spirit says expressly that in latter times some will depart from the faith. This isn't the faith anymore. This isn't the one faith anymore. This is a departure from the faith. It's not a part of the faith. It's not cutting up a slice of the faith. It is departing from the faith. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And he goes on, and among other things, he says, forbidding to marry, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so you have religious groups, and it's not just the Catholics, but others as well, that forbid clergy or certain of their members who are, according to God, free to marry, forbidding them to marry. And then, as also mentioned in this passage, you have some that forbid the eating of certain foods. Notice 1 Timothy 4 and verse 3 again, these that have departed from the faith, that would depart from the faith, command to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You know what I believe? I believe you can eat it if you're thankful for it. I thought, a lo- I thought long and hard before I ate those mapani worms if I could really be thankful for those. But I was. If you can thank God for it, you can eat it. And it doesn't matter if it's a mopani worm or a pig's feet or a steak. 
That's what this is teaching. That's not what many religious groups teach. And again, several Eastern religions have a lot of restrictions on foods, but many who claim to be followers of Christ. Seventh-day Adventists have uh, dietary restrictions based on the Old Testament law, by the way. Mormons forbid eating hot liquids and I think still forbid drinking caffeine, uh, other things like that. Catholics forbid eating of certain meats at certain times, and on and on we could go. Strictly warned about, this is a departure from the faith. It's not part of the faith. It's not a denomination part of the faith that God approves of. There's no such thing. But we're warned about this in Scripture. In Scripture, we're warned about leaders of religious groups who act like they're God, who put themselves in the place of God. Some denominational clergy claim to remit sins on God's behalf. They have the power to forgive sins as God forgives sins. Some claim to be head of or president of or father of over their churches. Of course, the word pope means father. Several religious organizations have a president. I can name several of those for you. Many of the ones that have buildings around us have presidents. Or they have some synod that has a president or head of. Or they have a headquarters on earth. And if they have a headquarters on earth, you know it's not the church of Christ because our head is quartered in heaven. His headquarters is in heaven where he rules from. And so if any religious group has an earthly headquarters, you know it can't be what you read about in the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, there's a prophecy concerning an individual, and some would debate who this individual was, if he represents uh, heresy in general, but an individual who exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he sits in God in, as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. And the ESV there says proclaiming himself to be God. You say, oh, oh surely we don't, have, we don't have men on earth who proclaim themselves to sit in God's place and proclaim themselves to be God. Surely we don't, we don't have that. Oh, yes, we do. That's what's going on in the religious world. Now, you try to pin them on it, and they'll you know, use some sort of quibble or, quibble, quibble or equivocation or something like that to shade it, but that's really what's happening. Because this pronouncement of this president or this pope or this uh, head of this synod or whatever it is, the pronouncement that they make, that's the word of God. They're speaking for God. They're speaking as God. And you better do it and if you don't do it, you're disobeying God because they said it. That's where they are. That's where they stand. It was, if it wasn't so sad, it would have been funny. This last couple of weeks as the Pope of the Catholic Church was talking about what the church is going to say concerning gays. And after all that the popes have stood for and done and said over the centuries. He says, who am I to judge? Well, you're claiming to be God. That's who you are to judge. You've been judging everything else, making all these pronouncements for centuries. That's what you have in denominationalism. You have those who deny the virgin birth of Christ. Again, this is something that was 
predicted or talked about in general ways at least in the New Testament. You say, well, who in the religious world would possibly deny the virgin birth of Christ? There was a survey done just a few years ago uh, by the University of California, Berkeley. So not necessarily a religious organization, but one that you'd expect to be uh, fair-minded in making a survey like this. The University of California at Berkeley polled denominations to get their view of the virgin birth. They found that 69% of American Baptists believed in the virgin birth. Now, American Baptists are different from Southern Baptists. Let me get that straight. That's a different denomination, American Baptists, Southern Baptists. So probably in Southern Baptists, more would believe in the virgin birth. But in American Baptists, 69% believe in the virgin birth. 66% of Lutherans believed in it. 57% of United Presbyterians, 39% of Episcopalians, 34% of Methodists, and 21% of Congregationalists believed in the virgin birth. That means the rest of them did not believe in the virgin birth. Did not believe in the virgin birth. The Apostle John wrote, and he saw this coming. In fact, it may have come when he was alive. Seems to have. 1 John 4 and verse 1. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they have God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. A spirit which denied the identity of Jesus Christ in the flesh as the Son of God. Had a lesson just a couple of weeks ago on the incarnation. There are multiple religious groups in the United States of America and across the world who do not believe what the Bible teaches about the incarnation. Which again is the absurdity of what so many do at Christmas, and I mentioned that in the lesson a couple of weeks ago. Don't even accept the biblical truth concerning the birth of Christ. Would rather celebrate some made-up stuff about the birth of Christ, if anything. John goes on in 1 John 4 and verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. That's what God's people do. Then there are those who teach and have taught that a Christian cannot so sin as to be lost. Uh, You will recognize that if you've studied religious history much as a key point of Calvinism. John Calvin. You might also recognize it as a component of a number of confessions of faith. I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith and others that certain denominations adhere to have statements along this line that a Christian cannot so sin as to be lost. In fact, uh, pure Calvinists, and they're sprinkled throughout different denominations, but there are two or three denominations that are almost wholly Calvinistic, Uh, There are some who are of various religious groups. There is one man uh, who's kind of representative of this. He's a a Baptist. Now, again, not all Baptists would say this, but some would for sure agree with what he says about this. Sam Morris is his name, Baptist preacher. Let me quote him. He says, We take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. 
All the prayers he may pray, all the Bibles he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, all the debts he may pay, all the ordinances he may observe, all the laws he may keep, all the behaviors, all the benevolent acts he may perform will not make his soul one whit safer. And all the sins he may commit, listen to this, all the sins he may commit from idolatry to murder will not make his soul in any more danger. The way a man lives has nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. You don't think people believe that? I guarantee you that you do. you probably got neighbors that believe that if you pinned them on it. It's in their confessions of faith. It's part of the constitutions of their denominations. Don't you ever leave the Lord's church, his people, and go out to some denomination and say, well, it doesn't matter. We're all the same. No, we are not. The very idea that sin doesn't matter with respect to your eternal salvation. And the point of that, of course, Calvin, if you're wondering what in the, where does this come from, well, Calvin believed that... Uh, God preordains who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. And it doesn't matter what you do, that he just randomly chooses. And that once you are saved, the perfect life of Jesus Christ covers you no matter what you do. It's called the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And the idea is that it's like you're under that umbrella. When God looks down at you, he doesn't even see you. He only sees Christ's perfect life, and it covers you. And you can do anything under that umbrella you want to do. He'll never see it. That's the doctrine. That's the belief. What does the Bible say? Right there in that same context, John saw this coming too. <laughs> First John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. You know what? You're not just righteous because Christ's personal Righteousness covers you. That is never taught in Scripture. You are righteous because you're forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's a whole different thing. You're righteous because once forgiven by the blood of Christ, you do what is right. If you were paying attention to the welcome slides this morning, that was the point. Doing what is right. What does John say? Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins, he who sins is what? Saved anyway? He who sins is of the devil. That's what he says. I don't know how anything could be any plainer. And somebody writing, well, God, it doesn't matter whether or not you sin or not and how many sins you commit and all that. So he who sins is of the devil. It doesn't matter if you want to be of the devil, I guess. But that's not what that man was saying, and that's not what these people believe. And then maybe as much as anything else in the world today that delineates human denominationalism from biblical Christianity is this final point, fake miracles. And one of the things I'm amazed at is every, everywhere I go, and uh, I, again, I, I appreciate so much this church's fellowship with me and sending me places around the world, allowing me to interact with our brethren and hold up the hands of faithful preachers and other places where we're, that we're supporting. But just to get to see those cultures and see what's going on spiritually in so many different societies, 
But this business of, well, we're going to perform miracles, you know, and uh, so you're supposed to follow us and give us money. That is a common theme in every country I've been in. Several denominations of the Pentecostal or Charismatic stripe <clears throat> claim to perform miracles, usually starting with tongue speaking, but lots of other things as, as well. And, and they just ignore passages such as one that we mentioned this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will, be, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it's going to vanish away. Talking about miraculous knowledge. All of those things were not designed uh, for permanency in the church. They were designed to pass away, to fail, to cease. That's what the scriptures say. But the Bible speaks of, of those whose coming is according to the working of Satan with Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, this coming is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with unrighteous deception. So are there people who appear to perform miracles and their, their wonders and their signs, uh, miraculous feats? Uh, what, are they, what are they doing? They're deceiving people with that. Follow us, receive a blessing, give us money, receive more blessings. I think I told you on this last trip to Africa, uh, talking with Brian, uh, one of the members of the church there in uh, Livingston, uh, Zambia. <laughs> he used to be a Pentecostal. Uh, he paid one time, he paid a witch doctor to get somebody for him, and the witch doctor didn't come through. And then he knew of a man who needed a miracle and went to a Pentecostal preacher to get a miracle. And the Pentecostal preacher said, well, give me money and I'll pray. And so they had this big healing service and uh, the Pentecostal preacher prayed for all sorts of people to be healed and got to the end of it and he hadn't prayed for this man's need uh, for the healing that he paid the guy for. And he went to him and asked him, why, why not? Why didn't he pray for his need? Why didn't he pray for his miracle? And the Pentecostal preacher said, well, you didn't give me enough money. And that's, that's really bottom line where it is. Jesus said that false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. Before you run off to some charismatic group where they're claiming to do miracles... You need to hunker down on Mark chapter 13 and verse 22. Where Jesus said, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show signs and miracles to deceive, if possible, the elect. Satan would love to deceive you to get you to believe that that's happening. Well, Thank you for paying such good attention tonight. I hope this has been helpful, maybe eye-opening to some. Uh, if you have questions about it, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. There's a lot to study when it comes to error. Uh, I'm much more fond of studying the truth than studying error, <laughs> but we can expose it with Scripture. Let me just end by saying this. The next time a member of a denomination, a man-made religious group, tries to tell you that his church is doing what the Bible says, that maybe you should just get your Bible open and show them that indeed they're doing what the Bible says 
is wrong to do. That they are, in fact, in the Bible, but not the way they want to be. I love my denominational friends and neighbors. I am sad that they are deceived. But they are deceived. And we can't pretend like they're not. And it should be our prayer not to give in to them, not to compromise with them, but to love them and teach them and bring them to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. I might be talking to somebody tonight who's right in that boat. I don't know that I am. But if you'd be willing to turn away from your man-made religion and turn to Jesus, he'll accept you. And if you are in some other way in need of answering the gospel call, we'd ask you to come while you stand and sing.